All right, well, good morning. Welcome to Hope Community Church. I'm glad that you're able to be here this morning and find parking and stay a little cooler. It's kind of the first real good hot day out there today. I'm so glad you're able to glad to be here. So those of you who don't know me, my name is uh, uh, Brian. I'm a pastor here at Hope, but I uh, predominantly am in uh, St. Paul in our lower town location and uh, we'll be there tonight. And so um, if you have any questions about that, I'm going to talk about that a little bit more um, in just a minute. So uh, the first thing I want to do, though, is just kind of give us a financial update. This is something that we have been wanting to do uh, for a little while now, just every quarter, uh, giving you a, an update of where we're at financially as a church. And so I want to give a couple uh, key points and just to highlight some things and, and give you the numbers and then just how we can pray as a church moving forward. So uh, the first one is that, uh, as a praise, is that God does continue to provide. Uh, that money is coming in uh, from your generosity every week, and it's just been fantastic to see uh, what has been coming in, and, and, and you're just giving that, right? It's, it, is a, it is a good thing. Um, uh, secondly, 48 new people uh, or units of giving have partnered with Hope Financially in just this quarter. Uh, there have been 82 that have partnered this year that have started, uh, started giving, and so, so thank you uh, to those new individuals. Um, so our, our total income that we've received this year as compared to our, our budget is uh, $915,667.75. Um, that's what's come in. That's a lot of money. And so I uh, just want to say thank you uh, to you for that. And then compared to the budget, though, we are behind negative uh, $291,430.66, which that sounds like a really big number, and it is a really big number. Uh, but God's good, and I know that he will provide as he has done year after year after year after year at Hope Community, and so we're just glad to be on the ride uh, and watch God work. So prayers that we would just trust God for his continued provision, uh, and again, it can be scary, uh, but God is able and, uh, and willing, and so uh, let's just pray about that, that he would continue, uh, that we would continue to practice good stewardship um, as a church, as staff, and make wise financial decisions as a church body. Um, and then finally, to pray that more people would give, uh, that that would be a conviction of saying that money is where my heart is. And if I really care about this church and I really love what I'm getting from this church and the community and seeing people come to Jesus and seeing people get baptized, then, then I want to help with, with my funds. And so, um, and we could just, uh, just pray for that and be convicted as well, those of us who are giving, to maybe potentially give more if we're able. So you just bow with me, and as we pray, and just thank God for what he's done so far, uh, halfway through our year, and um, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for where we're at as a church. I thank you that we can read these big numbers and, and not get nervous, um, because you are good, and you are a loving, gracious Father, um, that you seem to be doing a work uh, here in the cities um, with this church, and so God, I pray that uh, we would just be your servants, that we wouldn't try to force the boat in a different direction uh, that we can't, but that as your spirit would continue to blow and move the sails, that we would just be along for the ride and that we would trust that you are going to get us going in the right direction and get us to the destination that you would have us get to. So God, we praise you, we thank you for all you do and continue to do, and it's your name we pray, amen. Um, one uh, little highlight, if you will, um, is that in St. Paul, uh, on the same day that you are going to be making some major changes as far as Worship 3.0, on September 8th, you're moving to what time? 8.45, okay, quarter to nine, okay? 8.45, this service right here, if you come at nine, you will be 15 minutes late because we're going to start on time, okay? Um, I, I, it's not funny, we're going to start on time, okay? <laughs> um, uh, so 
just be here at 8.45. But actually on the same date, on September 8th, in St. Paul, we are actually also going to be moving to 8.45 a.m. And so we, for the last, almost thank you, for the last, um, the last two years, we've been meeting at 6 p.m., which has been convenient for some of you that like overslept and you're like, ah, I'll just go to St. Paul. Um, you can't do that anymore, okay? Uh, they're going to be speaking Burmese when you walk into the building now, so it may be a little confusing. Um, and so uh, just with our relationship with First Baptist, we're making the move to uh, 845 on September 8th, and we're really excited about that. Um, there's no AC in there, so you can imagine, so it's a little bit cooler in the morning. Um, so we're, we're thankful for, for that and what God is doing in St. Paul. Okay, we got a lot to cover today. I'm going to sound like I'm all over the place, if it's because I'm all over the place. <laughs> all right, so um, let, me, let me start with, with this, this, uh, this handsome gentleman. Um, this is uh, Anselm, and some of you who, who maybe went to the U, you might have heard of the Anselm House. Um, that's right across kind of in the St. Paul campus area. Um, and, and what their purpose is, the Anselm House, is just to say, hey, we're, we're intelligent beings that also have faith in our creator, in our God. And so can we blend our intellectual side of things with our faith? And how do we take our faith and influence the workplaces that we're in? And it's named after, after this guy, who was kind of a smart dude, especially for being, you know, from 1033. Um, not that they were dumb back then. That, that sounded negative, And it wasn't. I don't mean it that way. I'm sure they were all very smart. Um, they just didn't have Google yet. <laughs> Anselm, though, is very famous for what he calls, it's, it's now famously called Anselm's ontological argument. Here's what it is. Just get on the train and just stay on. Don't jump off early, okay? Here's Anselm's ontological argument. That God is the greatest conceivable being. Get that? This is a proof that God exists. God is the greatest conceivable being. Got it? Boom, done. That's proof. There's a God. Okay, this is what he says. We're all thinking of God. Think of whatever you think. This is the greatest conceivable being, okay? Well, he would say that something is greater if it actually exists versus just as a figment of our imagination. So if God is the greatest conceivable being, he would be greater if he actually exists. Therefore, God exists. What? This is what he's saying. Let's put it in our, our language. Let's talk about pizza, okay? We're all thinking about pizza. Pizza, if I'm thinking about my, the greatest pizza, right? In my mind, I think of a, a sausage stuffed crust, Lumonati's deep dish pizza from Chicago. Okay, that's what I'm thinking. It is, thank you. There's two or three of you in here that like that, right? Giordano's is okay, but Lumonati's is, is better. Listen, I'm thinking of this pizza. It's a figment of my imagination. It's a delicious, amazing, smelling pizza, all the things. It would be better if it actually existed, <laughs> right? An actual Giordano's or Luminati's pizza sitting here would be better than the one that's a figment of my imagination, right? That's what he's saying, that this God, if he is the greatest conceivable being, would be better if he actually existed. And then this guy, David Hume, then comes along and says, no, 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 you, you, you can't do that, <laughs> He says, that doesn't, here's what you're trying to do. Here's what you're trying to describe. And he says, it's like two, two men are, are on a hike or they're walking. They stumble across a beautiful garden. I mean, huge, massive, beautiful garden. It's, it's neatly manicured and taken care of. And, and clearly somebody has been working very hard to maintain this garden. And they say, wow, I really want to meet the gardener. I want to see who's taking care of this. I want to ask him some questions about this garden and what they're doing here. So they wait. They wait, and they wait, and they wait days and weeks. They've waited for this gardener, and he doesn't show up. 
And so the one individual says, well, there must not actually then be a gardener. I know that we can, it looks as if there's someone taking care of this, but clearly nobody's taking care of it. And the other one says, well, maybe we just can't see him. And then later on, maybe we just can't detect him. And so they set up, you know, booby traps and tripwire and bells and all these things. And they, again, wait weeks and weeks and months. And guess what? Nothing happens. And so the one says, clearly there's no gardener. And then the other guy says, well, maybe he's just an undetectable, invisible gardener. And the other individual then, and David Hume's point is, what is the difference between no gardener and an undetectable, invisible gardener? What's the difference? That's what we're going to try to talk about today. Or, as Richard Dawkins says, a well-known atheist, says, faith is the great cop-out. The great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even because of, the lack of evidence. And yet the author of Hebrews would say just the opposite. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for. It's the assurance. It's my receipt. I'm going to get this about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for in context in Hebrews 11, we you know, joke and kind of call the hall of faith. He's going to say by faith, by faith, by faith, these individuals did these things. In verse three, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen, this garden, was not made out of what is visible. We are in the fourth week of, hey, I have a question. The first week, three weeks ago, uh, Pastor Steve spoke on this. Is the Bible a reliable guide for my life? Can I actually trust that what I read in my Bible is true, can impact me? Is Jesus who he says he is? Are they all these stories, are they, are they real? Can it actually guide my life? And the answer is yes. We can rely on that. And you can go back and listen to the sermons and Analyze that for yourself, but I'm going to argue yes. And so therefore, especially today's sermon and all the other ones subsequently to come after this, this really matters. Because if the Bible's not true, if I can't read it at face value and take it for its word, why are you all here? It, it has to be a reliable guide for my life. And so therefore, when we look at this week's question, are the scriptures compatible with science or the origin of life? We're going to be specifically looking at Genesis 1 and 2. Is this Bible that I would say is reliable, it seems, maybe what I've heard in the past, teaches something different from what modern science is teaching. And and it's hard for me. Like, I feel stupid, right, when I'm in circles and they're talking about all this stuff, and I just go, no, you're wrong because I have this Bible that says something otherwise. And that's my story. It was something I I struggled with. I remember when I was, any time, like, I I love, I grew up, I'm talking about this a little bit later, but I love dinosaurs. I love them. And I was always taught that dinosaurs were, uh, you know, alive with human beings and all these different things. And I, then I would read these other signs at the museum and say, this thing's been extinct for 80 billion years. And I was just like, how do I, how do I wrestle this? How can we talk about these things? And so really this question could be asked, how are we going to trust this ancient text versus modern science? Can they overlap? And by ancient text, I mean Genesis was written over 3,400 years ago versus today's modern science and DNA testing and carbon dating and radioactive dating and all these different things. How do we, can we, how does this work? Um, any of you have any idea who this is? Just say it if you know. Who? What? 
It's, oh man, I'm a nerd. This is Dr. Ellie Sattler from Jurassic Park, all right? Paleontologist, right? Brilliant paleontologist, right? She knows all about the dinosaurs, okay? Knows everything about them, right? This was hands down my favorite movie uh, when I was a kid. It was actually the first movie that I went to see in the theaters. Um, I was just talking with Pastor Drew and Brooke Johnson about this last week. She was wearing a an original Jurassic Park t-shirt. I don't know if it's like original from her childhood, but uh, you know, not Jurassic World. And uh, she, she comes in like, oh yeah, Jurassic Park. I love Jurassic Park. I just geek out with Jurassic Park. And, and we're talking about it. And, and, and there's just something about it that made me just feel in awe as a child seeing these animals on the big screen. And there's this one scene in particular where she is uh, in the back of an SUV with Jeff Goldblum or, or Dr. Ian Malcolm. And, and Dr. Malcolm is back there, and he's, he's describing chaos theory, okay? He's describing the chaos theory, and he drips some water on her hand, right? Oh, I talk too fast, so I'll hold your head, okay? All right, and then he says this. He has this quote, though, and he says, and I love this. One of my favorite quotes in the movie, which is a stupid quote, but it just always made me laugh, was this. He says this. God creates dinosaurs. God destroys dinosaurs. God creates man. Man creates dinosaurs. And then Dr. Sattler comes in and says, Dinosaurs eat man, women inherit the earth. <laughs> it's a great line, right? It's a great line, right? What was really cool this past, I don't know, about a month ago maybe, I've been working on this sermon for, for probably too long. Uh, my mind's going a million different directions, but about a month ago, I was introduced to a Dr. Stadler, and I was like, what? This scientist, like you're a scientist, you're gonna talk about like the fossil record with me? Like I'm living my childhood dream, right? I was just geeking out, right? And I was not a paleontologist, but he's an author of a book called The Scientific Approach to Evolution, What They Didn't Teach You in Biology. And, and Dr. Sadler, uh, his, his bio is just massive, right? MIT, Harvard, right? 100 plus patents, medical devices, all these different things, right? Leading scientists at Medtronic. And in the email that was introduced by Colin Smith, I don't know if you're here or not, and when that one, right, he says, he outlines what all of he's done. And then he says, Brian um, is a pastor and preaches at Lower Town. And I was like, I mean, come on, I got, I got some credentials, you know? <laughs> like Maranatha Baptist Bible College, right? Come on. That's got to mean something. Here's uh, what he points out in his book. He has this graph. It may be difficult to see, but you can see the lines. That's all that really matters. So in the last uh, 30 years plus, this graph has gone by. It's a Gallup poll. The, the top one of that would say, and this is by in the United States, Americans. Okay, So, uh, so in, the, in the 80s, it was 45, and now it's gone down a little bit in 2015 to 40%. 40% of Americans believe in God, in a creator God, and created this world in seven days or in, it's a young earth. 40% of our population. The next line down, that's at 30%, would say, I believe in evolution or something like an old earth, but I also believe in a creator God. All right, that's 70% of the population. I was surprised to read this. The next line, that bottom one there, that's slowly gone up a little bit, and now, in this, that was the most recent poll taken as well, is at 19%, there is no God, and I believe in evolution. 19%. And yet, mainstream, media, whatever you want to say, that's, I, don't, I wouldn't have believed that. I wouldn't have known that. So he goes after these, these different groups, and which ones can science prove? Like an actual scientist, like doing things in labs. 
Can I prove this? One thing I need to set, uh, make very clear, that our views on this, now the bottom one, sure, if you say there is no God, this is a salvation issue. Okay, you, you need to believe in the Savior, Jesus Christ. But those top two and the, and the different viewpoints, even within all those, this is not a salvation issue. No one's gonna get to the pearly gates, right? And St. Peter's gonna get there and say, how old is the earth? <laughs> it's not gonna happen. Okay, um, the way that, so when I teach this in, in uh, systematic theology, I, I use this analogy of a raft, okay? That, that you, have a, you have this raft and it's got five beams, okay? And this, this raft is my, my lifeboat, right? It, it keeps me alive. And these, these five logs, right, are, are what I would call the fundamentals of the faith or what, uh, what I need for salvation, if you disagree with me about who Jesus is, we're on, the, we're on a different boat, okay? However, on that raft, we have a lot of different cargo. And there are some pieces of cargo that are really important, like food, and there are some pieces of cargo that aren't, like extra socks when it's the boundary waters and it's 90 degrees. I don't, I don't really need my socks. So if we disagree maybe on some of these things, you're taking my socks and you're throwing them into the water and whatever, we can agree to disagree. But some of those theologies in there are a little bit more important, and this is one that can be different depending on our viewpoints. So I want to be careful, but this is not the raft, okay? All right, so now, what can we learn? What can we learn from Genesis 1 and 2 about the origin of life? What does the Bible actually teach? What does it actually say? So, what is the point of the text? That's what we got to kind of boil it down to that. So we're going we're gonna to get to this. We're going to look at this in detail. What's the point of the text? John Walton says, says this, effective communication requires a body of agreed upon words, terms, and ideas, a common ground of understanding. For the speaker, this often requires accommodation to the audience by using words and ideas that they will understand. For the audience, if they are not native to the language and cultural matrix of the speaker, this means reaching common ground may require seeking out additional information of explanation. In other words, the audience has to adapt to the new and unfamiliar culture. Uh, another way that, that I explain this is uh, Robert Duvall's book, uh, Grasping God's Word. And he would say that what we need to do is grasp God's word in their text or in their, in their town. All right, so we have to go back into ancient Hebrew, ancient Israel, and say, how did they read this? When they, when they used this word, how did they hear it? How did they interpret that? That's what we do. We put their clothes on. We, we get into their tents. We eat their food the way they ate it and all these different things. And then we can go to our town. But we don't get to take our town and jam it into their town. All right, so what do the words mean. Let's look at it, how they would have understood this and interpreted this. He says this, and I'm going to just highlight some words here that we would maybe have an understanding or reading, and we can read this at face value in English. It's fine. But I think there's a little bit more depth here that we can get when we look at the words, okay? In the beginning, beginning here, when we think of beginning, in our context, in our town, usually means like, um, hey, when does the game begin? Right? When does service begin? There's a, there's, a, there's a time, there's a start point. That wasn't necessarily the case in ancient Hebrew. Right? In the beginning is just an undetermined amount of time a long time ago. But we don't know how much time. Is the earth 10,000 years old or is it 10 billion years old? It doesn't, that's, we don't know. It's not what that means. At some time in the past, God 
created. This is the word where we get the phrase in Latin, ex nihilo, that he creates with his breath, right? He's, he breathes everything, the matter, everything that we see and touch and feel, he creates all of that with his breath out of nothing. Says that, and then, oh yeah, just in, in context, the rest of it, anytime where God creates or does anything else in the rest of the text of creation, he's not doing ex nihilo. Right? What he's doing there is he's forming it out of pre-made matter that he just created here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens, they would have viewed the earth that had kind of three tiers of, of heavens. So they would look up at the clouds and the blue sky, and they would say, that's the first heaven. And then at night, when the blue would go away, and they didn't understand why it would go away, but the blue went away, and they could see out further into the stars and the moon and the sun, and they would say, that's the second heaven. And the place where God dwells is the third heaven, all right? So, so in the beginning, God creates the sky and everything in it and the earth. When we hear the word earth, what do you think of? I think of this blue globe, right, that, that Apollo 11 took, right, which happened. That's a different conversation, but it did happen. <laughs> he takes a picture. He takes a picture, and that's what we think, but... They didn't have pictures of the globe until the 1950s. Okay, so, so ancient Israel's not thinking globe. They're saying the land, the dirt, the earth. Now, the earth, this land, was formless and empty. It was a wilderness. It was uninhabitable. And then he says, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. This darkness and anything there where it's like ocean and deep is just chaos. Absolute Chaos was over this void, uninhabitable land. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, moving on. And God said, let there be light. When we think light, different, depends maybe on your background, right? I'm telling you right now, the author here is not thinking photons. They're not thinking wavelengths. They're not thinking matter. They're not thinking that. They're thinking light. <laughs> God said, let there be light, and there was Light. In other words, God, I'm going to let my presence, my light invade this uninhabitable, chaotic land, and I'm going to go there. What else would they say that might be a little different? God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. All right, so he's saying, let there be sky, if you will. Let there be this vault, this chasm in between the waters up above and the waters below. Why in the world are there waters above? And the vault here actually could be a, a solid canopy or a dome. Why? Well, think about it. You look up and it's blue. Why is the sky blue? Because water is blue. And every once in a while, water comes down from that blue thing. Why is there water up there? Now, does that mean the Bible? Oh, man, error, sign. No, because this, we're grasping the text in their town. And that's how they would have understood these different concepts. Let there be this vault. Let this be this dome. Now, when I read this, am I missing something? No. If I read it in the way I understand it, am I? We're going to talk about that in a little bit. Moving on. What questions is it answering? Again, we have to be careful here because what the original author, Moses, was not intending to do was battle Charles Darwin in 1880. It wasn't his goal. He wasn't, it didn't exist. Okay, so when we take our ideas of modern science, 
our town, and we try to read it into this town. It's called eisegesis. That's bad, all right? Any preacher, anywhere you go or anything you're doing, if you try to jam something that we're doing into that text, it's wrong. You just ignore it. Uh, an example, uh, a lighter one, and maybe you've heard this, maybe you've even taught this, it's not a big deal, because it's not a, not a big deal, right? When, when, the, when the Greek talks about God's power, the word there is dunamos, which is where we get our English word dynamite. So eisegesis is to say God's power is like dynamite. It's this explosive power. No, it's not. You're taking something from our town and jamming it in there. Dynamite wasn't invented until the late 1800s. So we, that's, that's bad. So we got to be careful. And yet, are there, just by the sovereignty of God, does he in his wisdom and knowledge say things that can speak into our town? Oh, yeah. So what are those things? What can these questions answer? It is answering the question, who are we? Where are we? Why are we? And who are the gods? Who is God? Israel had neighbors around it. As they would have traveled around, there was neighbors of Egyptian and, and Mesopotamian, and, and the closest would have been the Canaanites. And they all had different creation stories. Some of their parts of their story overlap with what Israel teaches because guess what? They all descend from the same people. Some things are the same. Some things are incredibly different. So when we move on from here, I want you to think of this. I want you to put yourself in their town. I want you to sit down at a table, recline, right? They didn't really use chairs. Recline with your neighbor who's a Canaanite, and he has a different story about creation. And all we're doing is saying, I'm gonna take some parts from your story to help you understand the context of where I'm coming from, and I wanna to explain to you these big worldview questions. The first thing that they would point out is that there is one true God. So again, going back to that graph, the 19% that says there is no God, we're not, it's, it's, it's eliminated literally in the first three words of the Bible, that there is one true God. This would have been different from his neighbors that would have had many gods. No, there's, there's one God. In the beginning, God. The next one is that God created the land and sky, the matter, out of nothing with his breath, that he speaks it with his power. Their stories are all this fighting and turmoil and chaos and fighting for land and all these different things. And what simply what this story says is God created everything out of nothing. In the beginning, God breathed into existence the heaven, heavens and the earth. Then it says that he creates order out of chaos. It says, now the earth was formless and void and empty and chaos. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters and God said, let there be light and there was light. God, God infiltrates this uninhabitable land and creates order out of him, his own being being present. That's not the stories of the surrounding nations. The surrounding nations, one God, Murdoch and, and, and Baal, they had to kill some other God. There was battle and death and war to, to make uh, peace. It's not true in this story. In this story, there's one God, and this one God is all-powerful, and there is none like him. And he creates order out of that chaos. Another one that I want to talk about, I'm going to talk about this in a little bit. He creates animals in their kinds. 
And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind. So that's what God says. God just says this. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And just after that, he's going to do the same thing with the fish. Their kinds, their kinds, their kinds, their kinds. So I'm going to come back to that, so keep that in mind. Next thing that we see that he does He creates humankind as the pinnacle of his creation. That Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 tell this story of the creation of humanity. And what does it say? God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Let them be like me. Let them resemble me and do something. I'm gonna make them incredibly unique compared to all the other creatures so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then in Genesis 2, kind of retelling this story from a different perspective, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When Yahweh God made the earth and heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth and no plant had yet sprung up for Yahweh God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. And then Yahweh God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. I'm gonna do something unique and special with every human being that ever steps foot on this earth. You're gonna be my image bearers and you're not to make any images that resemble me because you do that through procreation. You are my image bearers and you worship me and me alone. And that wasn't true of surrounding communities. Of the neighboring people and their stories of creation of of the man was bloody and gruesome that we're gonna kill a God and then we're gonna mix its blood with the earth and we're gonna form man. And now man, you're gonna be my slave where God says, I'm gonna breathe my breath into you and you're gonna be like me. And I'm gonna walk with you and I'm gonna talk with you. I'm gonna be your God and I'm gonna dwell with you. I'm gonna walk with you in the cool of the day. Those are two drastic, drastically different, different stories. You are different from all the others. And then finally, again, I just time's sake, we're not going to look at this. We just sang about it, so maybe that's enough. But we are all fallen creatures from Adam. That we are all, as being descendants from Adam, that we are fallen human beings. We are fallible, that we have inherited this sin nature that we got from Adam and from the fall just shortly after this beautiful harmony of God dwelling with his people. So, does Genesis answer how old the earth is? In other words, what it's all about the seven-day thing. What do we do with the seven days? Because if I said, hey, Angela, I'm going to be gone for seven days, it doesn't mean 10 billion years. Okay. <laughs> so what do, we, what do we do with that? It's a good question. Um, I have a couple different authors here. I just want to read them. And listen, I, I understand that there might be people that disagree with this. Okay? This is not the raft. Jesus is awesome. All right? We can debate this and talk about this all we want, but there is a God and he does create. So what's with the seven days? Okay, here's what he says. The seven days are not given as a period of time. This is uh, John Walton in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, Ancient Cosmology, uh, on an origins debate. It's a good read. Check it out sometime. 
The seven days are not given as a period of time over which the material cosmos came into existence, but the period of time devoted into the inauguration of the cosmic temple. It is this inauguration and entrance of the presence of God to take up his rest that creates the temple. If the seven days refer to a cosmic temple inauguration, then Genesis 1 as a whole has nothing to contribute to the discussion on the age of the earth. This is not a conclusion designed to accommodate science. It was drawn from an analysis and interpretation of Genesis in its ancient environment. The point is not that the biblical text therefore supports the view of an old earth, but simply that there is no biblical position on the age of the earth. He said, it's not, the, it's not the point of the text. It's not saying it's old, and it's not saying it's young. It's saying God's coming to dwell with his image bearers, and he wants them to be like him. He's gonna make his heavenly dwelling space come into this world so that he can dwell with us. Another quote is this. The seven days of Genesis 1, this is a Hodge, uh, revisiting the days of Genesis, a study in the use in the time of Genesis 1 through 11, a light of the ancient Near Eastern and literary context. Again, fun read, okay? Check it out. The seven days of Genesis 1 are representative of a context, not a measurement of literal temporal units. This is not, again, this is what he said. This is not to say that they are representative of a longer or shorter periods of time, as they are not representative of time at all. Instead, they represent the consecration of what is ordered as a temple in an effort to convey the theological concept about God, humans, and the universe in which they reside. So, what is it? The point is, that's not the point. The point is there's a God and he loves you and he created you in his image. That's the point. And this is where we reside. So then can science tell us where life originates? Going back to Dr. Sadler's book, um, this is a little hard to see, but um, he has a couple different graphs and and different things. And and his whole argument, really, to boil it down, I'm not trying to simplify it because it, it, a lot of it, okay? But the main point of it, though, is that there is certain criteria for high-confidence science, and there's criteria for, for low-confidence science. He's a medical doctor, right? He creates medical devices and, and, and drugs and all these different things. And his whole point that he kind of gives, he says, I, I'm, I'm an expert in my field. And if I say I've created a cure for cancer, and I go to the FDA, and I say, hey, I've come, and I have this cure for cancer, Let's start giving it to everybody who has cancer. And look, I even have my friends with me that are in the science field, and I explain to them everything, and they all agree. I'm the expert. This will cure cancer. The FDA is going to say, not good enough. That's a low confidence level of science. And yet there are certain things that are in our textbooks and our schools and our reading and whatever that he argues is low confidence science. Hey, I'm an expert on this. I've studied these dinosaur bones my whole life. Guess what? It's this old. And a lot of us go, okay, but yet, can we prove it, right? And he kind of has these six steps, but the top two are the most important. The the top one being the most important. Is it repeatable? Can I go and look at modern science and say, how did life originate? I can't repeat that. All right, that's his his point. Let me me go on what he says about evolution here. And this is just a, a definition of evolution. Grand evolution, or what we're going we're gonna to later on term uh, macroevolution. Grand evolution, which is the theory that all life proceeded from a common ancestor 
through a slow accumulation of changes as a result of random mutations and natural selection. This grand definition of evolution is what is taught in our classrooms by law on the subject of surveys mentioned in chapter one, that survey that I pointed out. Grand evolution implies generalized evolution. In other words, minor evolutionary changes imply the occurrence of minor, uh, major, excuse me, major evolutionary changes imply the occurrence of minor evolutionary changes. For example, hey, we can observe in our time that there is this kind of dog, and then we can mate them, and there's these mutations, and we can observe this. If that's true in just our one lifetime, if we give it billions of years, then of course this also must be true. He says, but, what, but generalized evolution does not imply grand evolution. If I can observe this thing, it doesn't mean that's all true. Let me, let me show this way. This is macroevolution. This is kind of the tree of, the tree of life, if you will. It starts with that little amoeba, right? That, that thing, right? And they'll disagree with, even with each other. Did that thing always exist or did it self-exist and all that, okay? Science can't prove that. You can't prove that in a lab. I, I can't make something out of nothing. All right, so now when they, when they go, this tree of life, though, it branches off, right, into the, the, the plant world, into the sea world, into the right, dinosaurs, and then into the, into the monkeys and the humans and all these different things, right? It's, it all comes from something. What he's saying is just because we can observe little changes now doesn't mean this is all true because that's really bad science is what he's saying. What he does say, what I can prove, like I can prove this in, in a little test tube, what I can prove is that I can have a species, right? This is a fox. This is a, a red fox. That's the species. And then I can go to the genus. It's a vulps fox, right? This is the type of fox it is. And it has cousins along that. And then it also has a family, the canines, I can trace that. I can do all that, but I can't jump from family to order. Can't do it. High, reliable science says it can't be done. But yet, because we can observe, we can retrospect and say, yes, it can be done. And what he's saying, what he's arguing is you, you just can't do it. It's never been done. The fossil record doesn't teach that. And so what he's explaining is that can science and faith overlap? He's saying, yes. As long as it's good science. And I would echo the same thing. Can science and faith overlap? The answer is yes, as long as it's good exegesis. When we do bad science and bad eisegesis, we mash them together. No, they don't fit. They don't work. Um, oh, good, we got time. I thought I was going to have to skip all this, so we got, we got a little bit of time here. I do want to say this. This is not a... Um, not necessarily important. I don't think this is part of the question, but I think there might be some of you that are swirling these ideas in the back of your head, and so I just want to give a little bit of clarity on this. Um, initially, so how I would teach this in systematic is I would say here are six views of creation. There are the six different things and histories that have been out there for thousands of years. Here are the few that, that fall within biblical orthodoxy, and here are the few that I don't believe fall in there, which would be there is no God of evolution. So how, what are the other, other views? And so I'm not going to get into all the, all the details, but I do want to talk about maybe just the age of the earth, right? How can we look, if there are some truths here, what can they be here, right? A truth there, this is where I forgot to mention, is that this would say, and this would line up with what the Bible teaches about kinds, that animals were made in kinds. And if they got on the ark, it wasn't that they needed to have 40 different breeds of dogs. They needed to have two wolves, Okay. And that does happen quickly. And that's observable, and we can prove it. 
All right, so that, that's, that's what the Bible teaches. Again, is he trying to combat evolution? No, but I think it speaks into it a little bit. All right, let's talk about arguments for a young earth, right? Because you might say, man, I'm, I'm reading science and all these things, right? They kind of laugh at this idea of a, of a flood or all these different things, but, but I know that's what the Bible teaches. So what are, what are the arguments? Why do 40% of Americans believe in a young earth? Well, a big part of that is what's called catastrophism or the worldwide flood. And they would use examples uh, such as Mount St. Helens or something like that that would say uh, when Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980, it made this huge canyon. I mean, it just ripped a canyon down the side of the mountain. And there was layers of strata and all these different things that formed and that people could look at that and say, there's this little creek in the bottom of this canyon, and even though it's 150 feet deep, this creek, man, it must have taken millions of years, right? Because they're only using retrospective. But somebody was there and saw it, and they're like, oh no, a giant mudslide came and did that in about an hour. Right, so when there's a catastrophe, when there's something that is majorly upsetting of our, of our world, things move and layer and fossils and all these things get mixed around and it goes topsy-turvy. And so we can look at this idea of, of a catastrophe and that it makes the fossil record and it buries animals and all these, because this is another part, a fossil, a fossil can only be made if it, an animal is rapidly buried underwater. So we're talking about all these fossil records, right? It's another paleontologist uncovers a Tyrannosaurus rex and it, was, it must have been buried in a localized flood. It was a really big localized flood and it seems to have gone everywhere. I'm not trying to make fun of, because um, I'm, I'm, whatever. But this is a good point. And it, and it can't just be laughed at. This is, a, this is a good point. Other people would say that, that uh, God created the earth with age, right? If you went to the Garden of Eden and you chopped down a tree, uh, that it would have had rings, right? It, it would have looked like it had age. The same way Adam wasn't made a, a baby, he was made a man. He was born with age. Right? And so you could say, okay, I see that. My, my only problem with that is like, then, then God like put dead animals under the earth so he could just trick us later on, right? I, and I struggle with that. Like, ha, ah, got him, <laughs> right? I just, <laughs> I struggle with that one, all right? Uh, and again, this is, this is, I'm briefly just talking about these things, okay? But, so, but, but again, does Genesis 1 speak into this? It might and it might not. Arguments for an old earth. I think that when we look at the text and we really start getting into the language and we see that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, period, that it could have been an exorbitant amount of time to allow things to happen in this world of chaos and then God comes and says, I'm gonna make this world inhabitable for my image bearers. And so we can look at the text and we can say, it seems like the language leaning this, if we get ourselves in their context, is this what this means? It may mean that and it may not. That's not the point of the text. The point of the text is to say, who is God? Who are we? Why are we here? And where are we? So then what can we believe? All right, what's the point of all this? All right, we get into this. If it's not the, if it's not the raft, if this isn't really a big deal, what can we believe? Here's what we can believe. In the beginning, same word in the Greek, Septuagint. In the beginning, was the word. John is gonna argue here that the word, Jesus Christ, was there in Genesis 1. 
How long ago was that? I don't know. But in the beginning, Jesus was there. And that word, Jesus, was with God. And that word, Jesus, was God. And he was with God in the beginning. And through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing that has been made has been made. He spoke it into existence. In him was life, that breath of life. And that life was the light, his presence in all of us, to all of mankind. And that light shines in the chaos and chaos has not overcome it. That's what we can believe. How old is the earth? Bible's not very clear. How are we saved? Jesus, that is clear. Again, moving on. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Now we can sit here and we can talk about uh, the theory of relativity and chaos and or mass and time and all these different things. I don't think the Apostle Paul is talking about that. I think he just understands the Bible and says Jesus has always been and he will always be. Because he said before Abraham was, I am. I am the ising one. I am the self-existent, eternal God of the universe who created you and breathed life into you and I wanna dwell with you, but you guys sinned and you kicked me out, but I came back to save you and now that I've saved you, I've left to go with my heavenly father and I'm waiting for this moment where I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna make it just like it was in the garden again and I'm gonna dwell with you and you're gonna be my people and we're gonna love each other the way we always should have. That's what we can believe. Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death, has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And finally, in 1 Corinthians 15, 44 through 49, here's what I can believe. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first Adam became a living body. The last Adam, Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural and after that, the spiritual, the first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man was of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, you and me. We will return to dust and ashes. And as the heavenly man, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we who have been born the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man that the second Adam is here. He has come and he has died for your sins and for my sins. So gospel application, what can we believe? We can believe the Bible. The Bible is a reliable guide for my life. That I can trust the Bible with what it says. I can take it at face value and say, I believe this and it's changed me and it's impacted me. When it's good, theology and exegesis. We can believe in modern science. And we can look at modern science and say, that's so fascinating that my, my life has been saved multiple times by modern science. Like, I'm, like I'm, 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 a, I'm a fan of modern science. Lungs, both, done, stopped working. It's a big deal. We can, we can believe in that when it's good, reliable science. And finally, we can believe in the second Adam who's going to make this world 
inhabitable for he and his heavenly father again and they will dwell with us and we will be his people. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time together. I pray that it's, it's profitable for all of us that are here, that are hearing your word preached, that are, are getting into this context and, and maybe came in here with some different preconceived notions and, and presumptions. And, and God, maybe those were challenged today. Maybe that those that would be uh, wrestling with those would wrestle well. That as they would take these things, they say, man, I, I still really believe something very different. That's okay. Because what matters is the raft that's keeping us afloat. What matters is Jesus Christ. So God, as you sent that second Adam, the true Adam, into this world to live the human life that the first Adam couldn't live, and that we are joined with him through his great sacrifice and his and your love for us, God, would we bring him and you honor and glory? And would we do our part, as you've described in Scripture, to get and help as many other people that aren't on this raft on it and be followers of Jesus and be dependent on Jesus? So God, it's in your beautiful, glorious, creative name and how great you are that on that beautiful, scandalous night, you sent Jesus, and it's in his name that I'm able even to approach and pray to this holy creator God. Amen.